Are we really? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to go a little off script here at the, at the beginning, but I'm going to teach you a valuable lesson. Uh, so we want to be completely transparent at Plant Grow Harvest, right? So I'm sitting there, standing there, and we're singing, and I'm looking at my whiteboard here, and I'm thinking, we're not in Isaiah. <laughs> why, why is Isaiah up there? So then the next thought I had was, well, maybe God wants us to read Isaiah. And so I look it up, and there's, there's not an Isaiah 39, so I'm just a fallible man. So the lesson in that is make sure that you go home and, and study for yourself, uh, because just because we're not perfect and we are prone to mistakes. So we're going to look at Hebrews 10, not Isaiah 10. Uh, so go home and double check. Study for yourself. But we're gonna, we're gonna be in Amen. That's right. We're gonna be in Hebrews ten nineteen through thirty nine. If you if you want to turn there, last week Jed did a great job of taking us through chapters eight, nine, and ten. And uh, as we get to the second half of chapter ten, starting here in verse nineteen, we're at a pivotal part of the book. And so, if you think about that word pivotal, if you look it up, it just simply means vitally important. Actually, a better way to say that it would be is crucially important because you get our, we get our word crucial from crux, the Latin word crux, which is which comes from the crucifixion, which just means crucial, means it's of the cross important. Uh, so when we get to this point in chapter 10, we're dealing with a very important situation. And so I want to ask you the question, how many of you have experienced a moment like that in life, a pivotal moment where you knew, I'm, I'm about to make a decision, and the decision that I make is gonna, really going to shape the, my life. It's either going to go this way or it's going to go that way. This is a very important decision. Uh, you know, as a coach, I've encountered that in a lot of games. This, this is the moment. I'll even catch my players and tell them, this is the moment. You want to win the game? This is the moment right here. How you respond right here is whether you're going to win or lose. Uh, so we're at that same point here. If you're a kid in here, how many of you have read a book? Most of them left. But how many of you, you ever read a book where, uh, like a choose-your-own-adventure book? And so you get to the end of a page, and it says, if you want to jump over the river, <laughs> turn to page 100. If you're going to turn away and go around the river and take the long way, turn to page 87. Have you ever read a book like that? Really? You're not living. You guys have read a book like that. Yeah, I know we have. So maybe that's a boy thing. But the decision you make will determine how the remainder of the story goes. Right? That's the point that we're at in Hebrews. This is a pivotal point as we reach verse 19 in chapter 10. Every individual is forced, is forced to make a decision. And the decision that they make determines how the rest of the story goes. Now, we live in a world that likes to think, well, I just won't make a decision. Right? I tell my students all the time, not making a decision is making a decision. You're going to make a decision, and a decision has to be made. So as we approach this, what, what, is, what is that decision? Uh, I wanna, we're going to go a little different direction because this morning the, the printer was out of toner, and I was going to give you a nice little handout. Uh, I usually have an outline up here, and so... I don't have an outline, so to speak, this week. But so, if you want to know a little bit about how my week goes, so typically on about a, on a Monday or Tuesday, I just read the passage over and over that that we're going to enter into the next Sunday. That's my responsibility. I'm going to read over and read over. I'm just going to let it sit on me, and that's going to determine a lot of times the direction that I go. Uh, and so, as I start to develop an outline, as I start to, to to write out a message, I start to think about well, what you know, what kind of aid can I put on this board here so you can go home and you can study on your own? Uh, I'm, I'm real hesitant to call this a vision. Um, 
But this is what I saw about Wednesday night, Thursday. Um, so we're going to take a little journey this morning. And I, I had a nice little handout for you, but we're, we're strolling down a path of life, right? And you've been in here. So this is a path that you've been on. If you've been here for about the last month or six weeks, this is the path that you've been on. And we're walking down this path that has clearly shown us the doctrine of Jesus Christ. So we can say that for the past six or so weeks that we have been studying the book of Hebrews, but we could just as equally say we've been studying the, studying the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Now, some people may not know what that word doctrine means. It just means a point or a principle. These are the principles that the church stands on. And we've taught, through, as we've moved through Hebrews, about the doctrine of Jesus Christ. These are the principles of the life of Jesus Christ that we stand on as believers. And so as we move through specifically the first five books of Hebrews, this is what we found in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. He's the Father's spokesman for the last days. Hebrews 1, 3, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is God in flesh. Hebrews 1, 4, we were told that Jesus is greater than, he's greater than the angels. Hebrews 1, 8, he's not a created being. An angel is a created being. He is the creator. Okay, He's a greater being than the angels. Hebrews 1.8, he's given the throne and the scepter of the kingdom, so God gives him power and authority. Hebrews 2 and 9, he became lower than the angels and tested, tasted death for every man. So he became flesh, walked on the earth, and tasted death for every man. Hebrews 2.16, he came to the aid of Abraham's offspring. You know, God gives Abraham the promise, through your seed I'm going to bless all the people of the world. Hebrews 2.17, he was made a high priest to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So he's going to bridge the gap and he's going to allow us to come back into fellowship with God based on the work that he did on the cross. Hebrews 3.1, he's the high priest of our faith or confession. Hebrews 3.6, he's in charge of God's house. Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted just like us, but he was without sin. So when you're sitting all alone and you're dealing with a hard time and you're thinking, man, there's nobody else has experienced what I've experienced. The Bible tells us specifically that Jesus Christ did. Hebrews 5, 5, he was appointed a high priest by God. And Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, he became the source of our eternal salvation. Then as we move through Hebrews 6, chapter 6 through 9, it talks about he's the, the certainty of God's promise to Abraham. Jesus fulfills the certainty of God's promise. He's the high priest of a new and better covenant. He talked about the Mosaic covenant. And he said, no, Jesus is greater than Moses. And this covenant that he brings to you, this new covenant, is better than the old covenant. And most importantly, in chapter 9, chapter 8, 9, it tells us about the redemption that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ. Once and for all, he talked about, you know, the priest had to do sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And he says, the author says, no, Jesus Christ died once and for all to cover all sins. So you walk down this path where we, where we are taught all of this doctrine. And we get to this fork in the road where, all right, this is what you've heard. And the author of Hebrews basically says, this is what you've heard, so what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Let's read Hebrews 10, 19 through 39, and then we'll come back through and, and take each section. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to good love and good works. 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those you so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Jed hit on this last week, and he did a really good job. But I think that we need to slow down and we really need to take some time and just dive in here and see what God is telling us. I think he's got a a real message for us. And if you look at verse 19, how does it begin? It begins with therefore. Why does it begin with therefore? Because he's, he's pointing back to this path that we've just walked down. He says, therefore, if you heard all of this, then you know then you know that you can approach with confidence. Because of these things, we believers have confidence to approach God. See, previously, only on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could walk into the Holy of Holies where God's presence resided. Only once a year. But now, this author says, through the work that Christ has provided us, He's given us access through the curtain. Right? The high priest had to go through the curtain. He was the only one that could go through the curtain. The author's saying, now you can go through the curtain and the curtain is the body of christ he's given you access through him and he says as a result of what jesus christ did through his death on the cross and his resurrection we can now approach god through christ that's big news and he's saying since you know that since you know that what are you going to do with it since we can approach god with confidence because of what jesus has done The author charges us to do three things. And and what we're going to look at is he's telling us, basically, listen, you've heard all of this. You can do do this the right way, or you can do it the wrong way. And what I want you to hear clearly is, there's no third way. There's no in-between. There's no gray area. There's a right way and a wrong way. So he's going to break down the right way. And he's going to break down the wrong way. Then he's going to come back and he's going to encourage you. Listen, do this the right way. So we look at verses 19 through 25. He says, since this is what you know, I'm going to charge you to do three things. If you want to do this the right way, I'm going to charge you to do three things. He's saying basically, this is how your life should be defined. These three things should define your life as a believer. The first is, he says, let us draw near 
with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. When the author talks about the heart, he's speaking about the inner man. What's really going on inside. So you can play this game on the outside, and we're all guilty. We play this game on the outside and try to hide what's really on the inside. But God knows what's on the inside. He knows the heart. In Matthew 12, 34, he says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In Matthew 5, 8, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they're the ones that shall see God. So if you want to see God, you have to approach him with a pure heart. It's important that you approach him the right way. Essentially, this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, don't fool around. This is no game. This is no game. You can't pretend. You can't hide. You can't play the game. Because if you play the game, you're going to lose. If you go back and look in Acts chapter 5, you see the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah, ooh. So they've got this property, and they sell it, and they bring the money to the church. But they, they tell them that this is all the money, but they've tucked some away for themselves. And when questioned about it, Ananias drops on the spot. God kills him on the spot. And then here comes his wife in. Doesn't know what's just happened. Question her. Yeah, this is all the money. And Peter's pretty hardcore and says, well, guess what? The guys that just carried out your dead husband, they're about to carry you out. And she drops dead on the spot. Now, I haven't seen a lot of that happen, but ultimately, if we're playing this game, we're going to lose. And so this is no game to play. The only way that you can approach God is with a pure heart. And the only way that you can do that is through a full assurance of faith with what Christ has done. Because if without what Jed just said, without the work that Christ has done, there's no approaching God at all. It's through this faith in Christ that our hearts are sprinkled clean and our bodies are washed with pure water. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. So through faith, through approaching God with a pure heart and through an assurance of faith, He's going to clean us. The second thing that the author says is, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Jed talked about this last week. This ultimately boils down to the fact that Christ is our only hope. He's our only hope. And the author is telling you, if you know that you've walked down this path, you've heard this, if you know that He's your only hope, cling to it, desperately cling to it. This is not a casual relationship, but it's a vital relationship. The imagery that, that popped into my mind, and I'm, I'm full of bad examples, but the imagery that popped into my mind, I left my phone down there. But how many of you have been, so I'm standing here in a conversation. This happens all the time. I'm standing here in a conversation with Jed. My phone rings. I pull my phone out. I look at my phone. Eh, that can wait. I put it back in my pocket. What the author of Hebrews is saying, this relationship can't wait. The phone rings. You better answer the phone. Because there's nothing else that you can do. There's no other relationship that you can be a part of that is important and vital as this one. So hold fast to the confession of your hope without wavering. If you go back earlier in Hebrews 6.19, the author says that the, our hope in Christ is an anchor to the soul. This is what should ground us as believers, our hope in Christ. 
It's what should define everything that we do. See, we have hope that God will fulfill all of his promises because he's a God in which we can place our confidence. And scripture is full of proof that he is a God that keeps his promises. If you go back to Exodus 34, 6 and 7, we talked about this with the youth on, on Wednesday. But in Exodus 34, God basically walks past Moses and defines himself. It says, He passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is a God that keeps his promises. So the question is, do you believe this? Are you clinging to that hope? Or are you questioning it? The third thing he tells us is, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. If you go back and you look at the original Greek on that, on that stir up, it's a, it's a paroxymos, which just means the, the intended meaning is to irritate. And it's one of the rare points where this word is used in a positive light. Because you think of irritation, that's not a good thing. right? But he's basically saying, you are to irritate one another to love and good works. And this is not necessarily a, an obedience to the command of a pastor. You're not to do it because I tell you to do it. You're not to do it because Dale told you to do it. It's not self-seeking. You're not to do it because you're going to get something out of it. You're to do it simply because you're a believer and it's what Christ commanded you to do. So we're constantly to be encouraging one another as believers. A few weeks ago, Dale mentioned Pastor Renee. A few weeks ago, Pastor Renee was here and he spoke about being a friend. Are you a friend? That's what this is talking about. It's the same thing that author of Hebrews is talking about. We love because Christ loved. It's born out of the cross. If we know the love that Christ demonstrated to us, if you know, forget this us business, if you know the love that Christ showed you through what he did on the cross, that he showed you, then you're to demonstrate that same love to other people. Here's the kicker, and here's where I'm going to get in your kitchen a little bit. This love is a product of community, which means other people are required. Other people are required. Go, let's go look at 1 Corinthians 13, 13, talking about faith, hope, and love. It says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. So think about this. You can practice faith by yourself. You can practice hope by yourself. You can't practice love by yourself. You can't practice love alone. So the author goes on to hammer home this point in verse 25, urging us as believers. He says, don't neglect meeting together. Why does he say that? Because uh, you can't encourage one another if you're not present. That's why. Let's go back and let's put some oomph, some authority behind that. And you look at John 13, 35. In Jesus' own words, he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If I'm not here, how is the world going to know? If I'm not here, how can I demonstrate my love for, for one another? I can't. Remember, the author of Hebrews is making note of three things that should define your life. Pure heart, holding fast to your confession of hope, and loving one another. It's, it's not an option. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. The fellowship of believers, along with our worship together, is a big deal. 
I want to give you two reasons. I'm going to chase a little rabbit for just a second. I want to give you two main reasons why our gathering together is important. Well, I'll give you three. Number one, because it says so. That's the only reason you need. But let's go two more. We need each other. Scripture makes it extremely clear, and you're going to see this in a moment. There's no neutral ground. I mean, it's, there ain't no road right here. <laughs> There's no neutral ground. You're either being molded by the culture and the world, or you're being molded by the Word of God and fellow believers. Period. End of story. We're in a spiritual battle. I talked about this Wednesday with the youth. We were walking through the first few verses of the, of the Gospel of John. And John 1.5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, that simple short verse tells me that there's light and that there's darkness, that they're both real. So in those few words, I know spiritual warfare is a real thing. And if spiritual warfare is a real thing, then we need each other. We need encouragement of each other. We need to worship together. We need to encourage one another. Second reason, we need spiritual food. If you're paying attention to the news at all, lately there's been a string of well-known Christians who have publicly denounced their faith. A large reason this is happening is because we've placed too much emphasis on emotions and feeling. Both of those, understand this, both of those, temporary. I'm not saying that all emotion is bad. There needs to be emotion. You, you repent, it should tear you up. You're being convicted, it should tear you up. But emotion is a temporary thing. Scripture also says the, is deceitful. the heart is deceitful above all things, right? So if I'm strictly guiding myself on emotion, it's going to be a, a bad day for me. So Scripture says we need spiritual food. We need the Word of God. And I pray that this place, that Plank Grove Harvest, will always strive to be a place that stands on Scripture and seeks to provide its people real spiritual food, not fluff. Because I want you to hear me. When tough times come, not if, when, Jesus makes it very clear that they're coming. He tells the parable and he says, when the storm came. He doesn't say if it came. He says when it came. Tough times are going to come. The Word of God is what's going to sustain you. Fluff will not. You're not going to earn brownie points by coming to church. Okay? I, I had a really good buddy, still a really good buddy of mine. And shame on me, I'll tell a story on myself. But I went to, we went to a Titans game one time. And I, I believe they were playing the Houston Texans, and he was a Texans fan. And we were going to the game, and he, uh, he wouldn't go unless we went to church before the game. So we stop at some church in Nashville and go to church, and then we go to the game. There's not anything wrong with that, but we've got to be real careful of he, just having that attitude where I'm going to check a box. Like, I'm just going to pop in the door. I was here. That's not the point. That's not the point of what the author's saying here. He's saying, you're a member of a church. You're a member of a body. You have the responsibility to be there, to encourage each other, to worship together. If you're a believer, this is what you should want to do. You're not going to get brownie points with God for coming to church. That's my point. You don't show up. He's not checking you off a list. There's no roll call. Okay? But your approach towards gathering together is going to reveal your priorities, and it's also going to reveal the condition of your heart. Remember, go back to one. I'm going to approach God with a pure heart. 
And my attitude towards fellowship with the body is going to reveal the condition of my heart. We're to approach God with a pure heart. I recently read this in a book. It said, If one would approach the sermon and the Sunday service not as a spiritual doctor's appointment or a rote exercise, but as a feast of spiritual food, one would attain maturity and joy previously unthinkable for a less seriously minded Christian. It's not a, it's not a doctor's appointment. It's not, what am I going to get for me today, necessarily? It's not, can I check this box off today? It's a feast of spiritual food. Let's go one step further. Why am I given, why am I given that spiritual food? Is it going to bless me? Absolutely. But I'm also a spokesman for God. You're also a spokesman for God. So what the spiritual food's going to do, if I'm prepared to take it, is going to equip me to minister to others. So we, we walk down the path, and he says, a decision must be made. And if you want to do this the right way, you're going to draw near to a God, God with a pure heart. You're going to hold fast to your confession of hope. You're going to love one another. This is going to be a big deal. Notice all these are in green. Life. This is where true life is found. He's going to come to the next portion of Scripture, and he's talking about going the wrong way. Notice all this is in black. This is death. This leads to judgment. That's what he's going to tell us. Let's look at that. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's pretty strong language. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You can feel the emotion as he's writing this. It's a plea. And he's not holding back. He's not pulling any punches. He's faithful to his call, and he presents the whole picture. And it's almost as if he's saying, listen, understanding the gravity of your life and where you place your hope, understand it. Don't take it for granted. This is not a game. God is a God of love, but he's opposed to all that's evil, and he will be vindicated. And those who continue to persist in evil will face judgment. Verses 26 and 27, what the author is speaking of here is continued sin. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, he's talking about those who go on in sinning. That's, a real, that's really the way you should interpret it. The go on in sinning. So he says, if you walk down this path, and if you know, you know, and you choose to go down this road and continue in deliberate sin, he says, he offers up some strong language. Some very strong language. He says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. He says, you're not covered. And you're going to be held accountable. This, this, is, uh, this is, I want to help you. I want to help you. And I think this is how you can, how you can read this. There is no longer a sacrifice for sin. What does that mean? It means Christ's work is not effectual for you. It doesn't mean it's not effectual. It means it's not effectual for you. And you may think, well, how cruel. No, man. 
you don't want it. That's what it's saying. You don't want it. And he's not going to force the benefits of his work on you. You don't want it? Fine. I can't, I can't walk out here and save people by the sword. I can't walk out here and save people by holding a gun to their head. God's not going to force himself on you, but the author of Hebrews is making it very clear. If this is a path you want to go down, then what Christ did on the cross, oh, it's fully effectual, just not for you. And what's going to happen is you're going to face judgment. All that you will have is a fearful expectation of judgment that's meant to imply frightening, terrifying. That, the word that he uses here is only seen three times in the whole New Testament. So you think he's making a point? I mean, he goes out of his way. Who's in high school in here? You any high schoolers in here? All right. You ever wrote a paper? You're like, I, really, I need a really good word for this. Let me go to the Theosaurus. What's a really good one? I, I want a really good one right here. The Theosaurus. That's what's happening right here. He's like, I need a really good word. That, I don't want you to read over this one. I want you to go, oh, this is bad. And this, he's only used this word three times in the whole New Testament. It's meant to catch your eye. It's frightening. He doubles down by pointing back to the Mosaic Law. Remember, he's talking to a bunch of Jews. He says, listen, you break the Mosaic Law, you better have two or three people that say you didn't do it, because if not, you're dead. He's saying, and I just told you that Jesus is greater than Moses, that this new covenant is greater than the old covenant. And if that's a fact, how much worse is it going to be for you? He goes on. So he gave us three, three things as we go down the correct path. So there's three things that should define your life as a Christian. And he goes on. He says, if you're going to choose this path, you're guilty of three things. The first one is you're guilty of trampling the Son of God underfoot. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Not only rejecting Christ, but despising Him. Okay? Here's another bad example. This is, this is what I do, man, so it just popped in my mind. This is like an umpire makes a really bad call. And so I go out and give him a hard time. I am rejecting the call that you just made, right? It ain't right, and I'm going to reject it. If I go one step further and start kicking dirt on the guy, I don't just reject the call. Now I'm despising you as a person. That's next level. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Not only are you rejecting Christ, but you're despising him. The same thing that Dale said. You're an enemy of him. You're also guilty of taking lightly the shedding of Christ's blood. Christ died on the cross so that you could have reconciliation with God. And when I choose to turn that offer down... I'm taking lightly the shedding of his blood. What I'm saying is, Jesus' death on the cross is no different than the death of any other man. That's what I'm saying. Lastly, he says, you're guilty of insulting the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that does the work of bringing grace to man. And when you turn that down, you're ultimately spitting in the face of the Holy Spirit. So he says, you're guilty of those three things. And I want to point out again, that there is no neutral ground. There is no stick my head in the sand. This is a fork in the road. It's two paths, not three. There is no gray area. You can declare one, and you can claim it's there, but it's not there. And the author of Hebrews says, don't fall into this trap because all that awaits is judgment. His main point, salvation is a serious issue. 
It is not to be taken lightly. Jesus called men to follow. Think about that. It's no different than this picture. Jesus called men to follow. You either follow or you don't. There's no middle ground. There's nothing casual about it. You either follow or you don't. Jed mentioned it earlier. Deuteronomy 6.5 You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. To not place God in His proper place in your life is a sin. And we're warned by the author of Hebrews to avoid continual deliberate sin. If you hear anything that I say this morning, I want you to hear this. There's so many distractions in our life. And many of those are considered good things. But do these good things veer us off the narrow path and take the place of God in our lives? Do we take our faith too lightly? This passage is calling us as a church body and calling us as individuals. Check yourself. Because this is not a thing to be taken lightly. Are we neglecting the greatest thing because of our allure to good things? Are we neglecting the greatest thing because we're drawn to good things? Placing your hope in a good thing is a tragedy when you have the chance to place your hope in the greatest thing. Placing your hope in a good thing is a tragedy when you have the chance to place your hope in the greatest thing. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, listen, you just walked down this path. The greatest thing has been placed before you. Don't go chasing after other things at its expense. Because if you do, there's no escape from the judgment to come. It's real, and there's no escape. So he comes back in 32 through 39, and he's going to encourage us. He says, but recall the former days. When you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay." But my righteous, he shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. He takes these, these listeners or these readers back to the first time they became believers, and he points to the struggles that they had, all the things they had to go through and overcome. They've been the subject of insults. They've been identified with others who were considered lowly. He says, you enjoyed going and visiting these prisoners. Well, what happened when they go visit these prisoners, everybody looks down on them and says, oh, they must be just like them. Why do they want to be around those people? So they have insults hurled at them. They're compared to others who are considered more lowly or of no value. They've had their property taken. Did you hear that? You've joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you know you've got a better possession and an abiding one, one that lasts. He says, even through all these difficult things, you were still focused on Christ. In, in verse 32 right there, it says, But recall the former days, when you were first a Christian, you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle. That hard struggle is better understood as a conflict or a contest. And it's, it's this word athlesis where we get our word athletics or athlete. So we're to look at life. What the author's saying is you're to look at your life as a Christian as a spiritual athlete. And if you're an athlete, what does that require? It requires discipline. Things are going to be hard. You're going to have to push through. You're going to have to train. There's a lot of times you're not going to feel like training, but you better train. 
The walk of a Christian is no easy walk in the park. And he says, you know, you know, even through all those hard times, even through all the things that you've had to endure, you know that the gift of Christ is infinitely valuable. So don't throw it away. Don't discard it. We're called to persevere to the end. He's saying, don't walk down this path and then decide, turn around and decide you want to go down this path because you know how infinitely valuable the gift is that you've been given. You're called to persevere to the end, to remain faithful to the end because it's at the end when you're going to receive your heavenly reward. John 6, 38, Jesus said, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Guess what? You're called to do the same thing. We're to persevere to the end and do the will of the Father. Just like verse 39 says, we're called to be those who don't shrink back, but those who have faith and persevere. This is a hard thing. It's a hard thing because it hinges on faith. Well, what's faith? Well, let's do a little sneak peek. If we look at 11.1, he makes it clear what faith is. He says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So it's the certainty of things that will be even if we can't see them today. That's what faith is. The certainty of what will be, but today I can't see it. That's hard. That's hard. And if you walk down through chapter 11, he provides us, what he does is he provides us with all these examples throughout history of faithful men and women. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, and the list goes on and on and on. What he's doing is he's encouraging us in the fact that, listen, I get it. Faith is hard, but it's doable. Because these people have done it. And they serve as examples for you. And if they've done it, then you can do it. All of these people that he lists in chapter 11, they had a valid and rational reason not to persevere, to fall back into their previous ways. But they didn't. They stayed true to their faith. Let's just look at one example. Noah, never rained, build a boat. Seriously? Really? And then here comes the mockers. It's never rained, build a boat. He's got all the rational and logical reasons in the world to say, this is for the birds. But he stays faithful. If you, if you fast forward through that chapter into Hebrews 12, at the very beginning, verse 1, it says, Therefore, another therefore, so looking back, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all of these examples that showed us what a faithful life looks like, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Come back here and know why we do this. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Another therefore, he says, you've seen it. You've seen the doctrine You've been presented with the fork in the road. You know you've got to make a decision. You've seen the evidence of the narrow path that can be effectively chosen. You've also seen the evidence of the wrong path and the judgment that awaits. So therefore, as a result of this doctrine that you've heard and the evidence of the faithful men and women that you've seen, let us live the life that God has called us to live. This is an important word for us today. Our salvation is not to be taken lightly. And the author's saying, don't fall prey to this gray area. Pursue Christ relentlessly. 
If you've never placed your faith in him today, judgment's only a heartbeat away. Don't allow your children to fall prey to the gray area. What are your priorities? What would your children say your priorities are? What the author of Hebrews is saying is don't leave things to chance. Don't neglect your worship together. Don't, don't neglect your opportunity to encourage each other. He says, let us draw near with a pure heart. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Let us consider one another. He says, you've been presented with the greatest thing. And if you choose to place your hope in anything else, it's nothing but a tragedy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, and we thank you that... Uh, that you presented us with an option, that you presented us with the path that we can go down for true faith so that we can be reconciled to you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, that today will be the day that they place their hope and their faith in you. I pray for all the believers in the room that they would cling to you and recognize the gravity of the situation. Lord, you're a good God and you've blessed us here. And Lord, I pray that we would remain faithful to you in all that we do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.